0: with us, and are they changed? How is God changing you? I want to start off with a scripture. Uh, We're going to open up to the book of John, chapter 9, if you guys want to, if you have your Bibles. So chapter 9. Verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is Jesus, he's walking in. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered that it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and then said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. I love that. He came back seeing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that that we can come together today, that we can gather uh, with like-minded people. Your word says where two or more are gathered, there you are also. And I thank you for your promise to be in this room today. Lord, I don't know what we brought into this room. I don't know what our expectations were. Uh, The pain that we brought in personally, uh, the expectations of maybe they're here to see a a story about a guy who was an athlete and then had some stuff happen. But Lord, I hope that they leave here, not seeing me, but seeing you, seeing you in their lives. They came to hear my story, but they hear their own stories and how you're working and all of it, the good, the bad, and everything in between. Lord, I pray that I could be a much, much, much lesser light to the greater light, and that when I open my mouth, it's just you that comes out. In Jesus' name, amen. So back to my question. What is your story? Where's God working and how is it changing you? Just like the, mob, the blind man, whenever we look, whenever we encounter Jesus, we should come back seeing, but we don't always because we get lost and, and kind of wallow in our brokenness. And, and part of the problem is just what happened with the, the disciples. Did he sin or did his parents sin? What, what, the problem is we always make it about us. We always make it about us, but it's about God. We're... We look at that story, and were there other blind men in that town probably? Yeah. There were crippled people. There were uh, people with afflictions and diseases and experiencing, you know, huge challenges. Did he deserve a healing more than them? Did he deserve to be blind more than the people who weren't? And we try to seek, uh, you know, horizontally answers to these questions and jesus is like no you're missing the point i didn't come to save you from all your problems that are temporary i came to give you eternal life he was born blind so i can show that the messiah is here that i have the power that i'm claiming to have the authority from heaven and 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 i'm not going to fix every temporary situation that's what i'm here to do i'm here to show who i am and the end of the story the spoiler alert is that I bring restoration to all things, that you go to a place with no more pain and no more suffering, and in the midst of these trials, I'm with you. That's the story. That's the gospel. But are we coming back seeing? Are we searching? You know, I believe that all of us have that same story, and and mine is just one example of it. So uh, again, I'm going to share a little bit, but I, I hope you reflect in your life, and, and you leave hearing about you. Uh, before I jump too far into mine, I've got to introduce you to some of the characters. This is my wife, Bobby Jean. She's super, super awesome, one of my real-life heroes. We have three little boys, uh, Justice, Trigg, and Hardy. Pastor Jesse says you guys really like the Zoom, so I'm going to really try to hit that. So that's Hardy, the little guy. <laughs> that's Trigg in the middle, and then there's Justice. You know, I'm always amazed because uh, I've got to share my story with some different groups. Like Andy said, we've done camp ministry together, um, got to speak in, you know, in some mission field situations, total, totally different cultures and beliefs. And um, what I'm amazed by is how people from different cultures and beliefs and ages and education levels, they say the same stuff. Like, I think we're just programmed in a way that, that we process information in the same way and people hear my story and and they say things like man you, you guys are so strong or you guys are so brave or courageous and I mean it makes you feel kind of good about yourself like kind of puff yourself up a little bit and so I kept hearing that word uh courageous so I, I finally looked up the definition and the definition that I thought was pretty cool was one who is not deterred by danger or pain one who is brave and I was like wow that makes me feel pretty good It's not true. Makes me feel good. You could say, Matt, it's so cool. You and Shaquille O'Neal are the same height, you being 5'7 and all. Sounds cool, but it's not true. Man, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not courageous. Like, I was this little kid that was way too old to be sleeping in my brother's room. And I'm like, please, can I sleep in here? It's so scary. I don't want to be in my room. Like, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not brave. And so I started looking into well, why do they think from the outside? And what could look the same from the outside? Because we are being authentic in the way we're going through this journey. And there was a word that was so much more important, and it's this word trust. And trust, the definition I really liked was a firm belief in someone or something to be reliable and faithful. And I said, that makes a lot more sense. There's fears. There's pain, there's struggle, there's doubt. But what's bigger than that is a firm belief in someone or something, in God and his word to be reliable and faithful. And that is way bigger and way cooler than being brave. You know, I learned early on, it's not are we going to face struggles, it's not are we going to face battles, but how are we going to fight? What are we doing about them? And and contrary to maybe what some motivational speakers might tell you, you know, having a can-do attitude and being an optimist isn't. It's, I don't think that always works. That's not a good way to get through things. <laughs> Trying our hardest will usually just leave us broken and defeated and out of energy. Like our best efforts can only sustain so long. And what I've realized is battles aren't even won on the battlefield. The battles are won before they ever begin, that we make decisions on the front end about who we are, what our beliefs are, how we're going to move through challenges before our emotions are involved. And then when we get to that moment that's too much for us to handle, we just manage the decision. We've already made it. Dale Carnegie, who's like way smarter than me, he's this like really smart dude, wrote this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He says, when dealing with people, it's good to remember we're not dealing with creatures of logic we're dealing with creatures of emotion. And it's true. We don't do what we know. We do what we feel. I mean, if we did what we knew, McDonald's would be out of business, right? Like, <laughs> how many documentaries do you guys have to watch about it's killing? Oh, wow, this stuff's really killing us and lowering our energy and shortening our life. And, but they still sell a bazillion burgers a year because it's quick and it's easy and it's cheap and it tastes good and it's immediate and it feels good. We don't think it's good for us. You know, and, I, and, and when we talk about our approach to this, it's like, you know, people, they use those words like courage and bravery. One I heard all the time was, hey, you know, God's allowing you to go through this because he'll never give you more than you can handle. That's another, I think you guys addressed that a couple weeks ago. I mean, that's probably one of the most misquoted verses in all of scripture. Like, there's a ton of stuff we can't handle. And what that verse says is when we're tempted, we won't be tempted beyond what we can bear. But there's a way that seems right to man, and then there's God's way. And, and there's times where we just say, God, I know what you're saying, but I've got to take the reins on this one. Like, this book was written a long time ago, and I know that your plans for me are to live like this and do this. And, and it's not the, the easy way, so I'm going to take the easy way because I think I've got it. And we can take ourselves down some really dark roads. And that's when people fall into... Depression and anxiety, and leave their churches and their families, even take their own life. There's a ton that we can't handle. There's nothing that he can't handle. And are we, are we persevering and taking his way? Because his way isn't always easy, but it's the only way. You know, I learned about this front end decision making pretty early in life. I was like a 14 year old kid. I loved action sports. I liked to skateboard and snowboard and wake skate and wakeboard, all of it. And I always thought that athletes were these like super gifted, just god gifted. They just, just some people got it and some don't. And then my dad told me the story about this guy named Roger and he's like, "Matt, did you know that for hundreds of years we've measured how long it takes people to run a mile." And it was a known fact by runners and coaches and everybody that you couldn't break that 4 the human body couldn't break that 4 minute barrier. But then in May of 1954, Roger Bannister breaks that barrier. Within six years, by 1960, we've got over 30 people do it. Today, hundreds have done it. High school runners have done it. And I remember just thinking, like, man, go that way as fast as you can. I'll time you. Like, there's nothing more physical than that. But maybe even that was more belief, more up here. We're so busy comparing ourselves to the, the, the limitations that everybody around us sets that, that we won't believe that God has made us to do and be more than we had ever imagined. And our biggest competitor is not the people around us. It's the guy looking back in the mirror. And as a 14-year-old kid, I was like, man, I love action sports. I'm going to do some stuff. And, and I went out and I started getting muscle memory on the trampoline, doing all of my training. And, and then I started getting in this mindset, not of like, oh, I can do it, I know it, I'm going to hope, but actually an expectation of that these things were already done, that, man, these are common tricks that I do and everybody does. They're novice, when in fact, I had never done them. Nobody in the world had done them. And before I knew it, I had a bunch of tricks that were new. And I got a call from a small company in Oregon called Nike. And they were like, hey, <laughs> we've, you know, your videos have caught our attention. Could you be our first wake athlete? And actually, a kid from your town, Kyle Smain, he was on my team, and um, I don't know if Sammy Carlson from here too, but yeah, a bunch of people. like it was. I, I realized these athletes, they just think differently. They're not born differently. They think differently. And I made a decision on the front end that these things had been done and were possible. And I changed my thinking and it changed my life. Before I knew it, I was traveling around. I was getting on the covers of magazines and getting to create cool content and go on these trips around the world and photo shoots. And it wasn't because I was a talented athlete. I'd love to tell you that, but it's not true. It's because I, I thought differently. I believed differently. I looked I looked for where Jesus had worked in how he created us and what was possible, and I came back seeing. I, um, to kind of fast forward a little bit, at the top of my career, it's like I'm a kid that just won the lottery in my mind. I'm traveling the world, getting paid to do it. And this is what, I'm going to do this the rest of my life and maybe one day be a team manager and all your dreams come true and you realize it's not that awesome. Like, that's really what it was. Like, I kept thinking if I could just, whatever, get on a cover or win this award or do this, I'd finally have that feeling of making it, the feeling of arriving. And eventually God just put on my heart, like, Matt, where do I and others fit into this you world? Because at that time, I believed I was a Christian athlete, and I was trying to give him the glory. But the Bible says we know by our fruits. And when I looked at the fruit of my life, my focus was more sponsors, more endorsements, more wins, more exposure for me. And where did God and others fit into that world? So kind of drastically walked out of my career, went to school for theology, had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew a hundred percent I'm not speaking. Like that was it. Like told all my friends my last message would be my last preaching class and I'm gonna be the guy helping the guy on stage or counseling pastor or missionary. And then God. (laughs) But uh go to college, two years into college, I marry Bobby Jean we're super excited. We thought we'd lose all my sponsors. We were able to keep them through school, so that was a huge blessing. And we're one weekend away from graduation. We're like right at the cusp, and we're super excited. And I said, hey, we could, because we're moving back to Florida, bring a U-Haul with all our stuff. And it just so happens this weekend is the first weekend of the Pro Tour. We could bring a U-Haul. I could compete, maybe make some extra money, go to Last contest, be super fun. Go back to school, take my finals. Graduation is Friday. We're moving out. We're going into full-time ministry. Young couple against the world. So the lake, it's a, it's, a, it's a private contest lake that we've used a ton. And it's a really good contest lake because it's a big oval. And the, the contest pass, you do all your tricks in the middle, in, in the main lake. And then it goes into a really narrow canal. And, and it has like a kind of turnaround pond at the end and what's cool is the boat can come through go through that canal you got to get right behind it and when it turns around none of the waves push back and mess up the the contest lake and i'm coming into that narrow section i've competed here tons of times and i've i'm looking at the space i have i'm like i could fit one more trick in it's going to be tight and i start to edge and it's lights out that's the last thing i remember next thing i wake up there's doctors all around me telling me not to move Um, The boat driver said in the air he knew I was going to land on the rock-covered shoreline, and there was actually construction debris that was, because we don't have rocks in Florida, and the erosion's there, so they dumped construction debris, broken up sidewalk and cinder block and all this stuff. And, um, you know, the boat's going 21 miles an hour. You can double the speed of the boat. Conservatively, I'm moving 30. And he killed the throttle, and he said I kind of dropped out, and as soon as my board hit the water, just hit that wall. And um, broke my skull in 13 places, got 16 screws and three plates to rebuild it. uh, Broke my tailbone, dislocated my hip, broke my hand in five places. And a piece of rebar or stick, we don't know, went through the back of my leg. Slight hiccup to young couple against the world going into ministry. I wake up and I am just broken. Like, I just missed my finals. I just lost the semester of school. Our apartment lease is up in a couple days. And where are we going to live? How are we going to get our stuff? What are we going to do? We don't have any money. Like, I could spend the rest of the message talking about all of the ways in which my world was just rock bottom, flipped upside down. Like, God, where are you? And I had spent four years studying the Word of God. But in the eight-month recovery, I had... I learned more about him than I ever had. I met a more personal God. I had this vision of like God, fall of man, plan for salvation, lots of brokenness in between. But I saw this personal God step in, and at my weakest point, when I couldn't do anything, I saw him be like, I'm right here. I'm right here, and put people in situations to help us through everything. My parents opened up their home, and the college let me graduate. All the stuff that just shouldn't have happened, just, it, it was incredible. And, and I remember thinking, like, this is the biggest thing we'll ever go through. Like, this is what I woke up to. If you have to look away, you know, some of the things I put up might not be, if you get a little queasy, but like, so that's where I was when I woke up, face collapsed, and I just saw God fully restore me in the middle of my brokenness. And I learned of this personal God. And I realized that's what he always does. Like, I want to open up real quick um, to probably one of the most encouraging books in Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. Go to the book of Lamentations. (laughs) I'm serious. Go to Lamentations. (laughs) Lamentations 1. Really, really encouraging stuff here. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly at night. And I can assure you the next 21 verses, there's 21 left, are just as depressing and sad. Let's jump to chapter 2. Maybe it gets better. Chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter... Of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And that goes on and on. So we'll, we'll try one more. There's five, we'll, we'll try three. I am a man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness. Like, it's, it's some sad stuff. It's really sad. But there's something really cool because the Bible's awesome. And a lot of us, you know, we jump into the New Testament, and we, we, we like to hear the, the fun stories, but, but it supports itself, Genesis through Revelation. It's consistent, and it's amazing how it works. And so let's look at the structure of Lamentations that I love. So there's actually, I don't know if you ever noticed, but there's 22 verses on the front end, all horribly depressing. There's 22 Verses on each chapter on the back end. So you've got 22 and 22 on each side that are really, really depressing. And then in the middle, you've got 66, which is 22 three times. So you've got kind of that zoom. I like that zoom. So you've got this 22 that's sad, this 22 that's sad, and then we've got the middle 22 verses. And let's see. Go to Limitations 3, and let's start in 20 to kind of set the precedence here. It says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So just kind of closing out those depressing thoughts. But, in verse 21, but, see, mood change here. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Let's see what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. And it just goes on and on, just like it's like a ballad, it's just powerhouse. The light in the middle of the darkness, right at the middle. See, in Western culture we don't know about that because if you watch any action movie, You know, the whole movie, everything's falling apart. Like, it can't get worse. Oh, it got worse. What are they going to do now? And it's not till the end that the hero saves the girl or saves the world, and we have this, like, kind of climax at the end, and then it ends. But, man, if we shut the doors in this room, block out the windows, and we turn all the lights off, and we want to light it up, do I put a light at the end, or do I put it in the middle? That's where it can shine the brightest. That's where it can overcome the most darkness. And in 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 ancient Hebrew culture, that's what they did. They intentionally Hebrew poetry they put it in the middle so it would shine the brightest. But that's consistent through the whole story. Christ, he doesn't wait for the end. Christ doesn't say Christ doesn't say, Man, one day, you know, one day I might come and fix stuff. You guys screwed it up, you ate the fruit, you're doomed. Enjoy a couple of years you have here, and hopefully I'll fix it one day and come through like the end of the movies. No, he says, while you were still sinners, in your pit, in your brokenness, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And he came, and he took on the flesh, and he went and willingly hung on a cross so we can have eternal life. And that is good. That is always good. He is always faithful always merciful, always loving. It's not one day, but it's two day. Paul saw this. Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else. Just powerhouse for the faith. And he talks about his struggle. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he says three times he pleaded, Lord, take this. Like This is too much, I can't do it. But he wasn't contingent. He didn't say, Lord, just take this from me and if you do, then I'll... Not one of those contingent prayers. Lord, heal me from cancer and then I will be... No, 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 Lord, because of what you've already done. Like, please, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to take this, but if you don't, it's okay. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God answers him. And he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, well, then I will, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. His response was to trust, to make that decision and say, I would love to not deal with this anymore, but if I have to, your power will be shown. Because in the middle of my brokenness, that's where you can shine the brightest. And, and, and I can't, but you can. And you can carry me through. You know, I knew when I faced my challenge that I wouldn't face anything that big again. Like, I knew that was my sort of, you know, that whatever you want to call it, the testing of my faith. Or, you know, I would teach my kids and grandkids the lessons that I learned in that recovery. But that was just preparing me for the accident that would forever change my life. One day I was um, helping trim trees at our church. And one minute I was up in the high-reach bucket. Next, I was waking up from a coma. What happened? Where am I? Matt, you were electrocuted. Electrocuted? I was. I, I was shocked. Like. <laughs> oh, real cool! Laugh at the burn survivor, guys. <laughs> no, but I was trimming trees, and we didn't realize arborists and, tree, and uh, linemen they use fiberglass insulated buckets. So at the church, we just rented this big steel high reach, and you know I'm probably here to the piano away from that main line that powers the whole block. And and it arced over, and once it grounds, it's as good as wired. And I had fourteen to twenty-one thousand volts run through my body. Baba Jean was there; she was pregnant with our first, and um, it wasn't looking good. It was all fourth and fifth degree burns on my upper body. And we hear a lot about third degree burns. Third degree is where it burns through the layers of skin. Fourth is where it starts burning through your muscle tissue, and then fifth, it starts burning your bone. And even in small concentrated areas, 50-degree burns are often fatal because it turns all of the muscle between that bone and skin into basically a, a poisonous filter because as your blood flows through dead muscle, it kills, it kills the, it, you know, it destroys the blood and it fills your kidneys and heart with poison. So it wasn't looking good. Bobby Jean was at the scene and she said it looked like something, you know, just fake. It looked like something from a comic book. Like you could see my, my rib cage was left rib cage exposed, and my sternum and my clavicle and everything else was just muscles hanging out. The skin was gone. It was just black and charred. And um, they held her back and held her back. And then like you saw in that trailer, she's like, I got I to gotta say goodbye. Let me say goodbye. And, you know, they knew they were losing me, so they let her come through and say goodbye in the way she could. They were really honest with my family early on. They said, you know, he got so much voltage and uh, it exited through the top of my head. I had, I had um, headphones on and my phone was in my pocket right here and it caught the wire to the headphones. It went down. It melted my phone to my leg. I actually have an Apple symbol burned in. I get free phones now. No. <laughs> but it did. It melted my cell phone to my leg. It went up and the earbuds melted my ears and then it went and burned this plate on my jaw that's one of my eye, and then exited through the top of my head and the front and the back. So they told her, they're like, look, I know you're a person of faith and you're praying. If you get your miracle, if he somehow survives, we're doing scans, we're trying to measure neuroactivity, and there isn't any. There's little to none that your husband is gone. And you need to hope and pray that he gets his miracle and can maybe one day walk or say a few words, but Matt is gone. I could just tell you story after story of the hospital, um, but in the essence of time. Uh, you know, one was we when I went in, they had said, um, we're going to amputate his arms at the shoulders. That's what we have to do. You know, there's so much 5th degree burn on his arms that there's no... You know, there, it's too high for us to keep him. And my parents fought and fought and fought and just were like, no, is there anything you can do? Is there any Like, if he lives, he's going to have a baby and we want him to hold him. And... Um, and finally, a few days in, they had delayed the surgery, delayed the surgery. And they said, look, it's not your call anymore. We can't allow his arms to kill him. So we've scheduled a surgery for 9, 9 a.m. to amputate his arms at the shoulders. And um, finally, at midnight that night, my parents were just pleading. Is there anything? And, and they said, look, we put a call in to Dr. Llewellyn. He's the best orthopedic we have and um, it, it's the middle of the night. If he wants to come in and try something, great, but they're coming off. And he came in, and he did a super deep fasciotomy, basically kind of an experimental approach to it. He put me under anesthesia, and he made hundreds of lacerations up and down my arms, just fine cuts, and he just let me bleed out. And, um, and while I bled out, he pumped new blood in my central line. I actually have replaced all of my blood about four or five times over. And, um, and as I bled out... It broke through the blood clots, and it got blood flowing and moving and led to relief and circulation back into my arms. But a year later, when I was in his office, just broken, just crying, thanking him for my arms, I'm like, I'm like I, you know, how do you thank somebody who gave you your arms? And, um, and he just starts crying, and he says, Matt, he goes, I'm not bragging he said, I'm the guy they call when they don't really have options. I'm sort of, I sort of know this stuff. I'm sort of the best. And when I saved your arms that, that night, I was doing it much in the way we save someone's legs in a wheelchair. He said, I cut through tendons and muscle flexors, and I knew you'd have limited to no use of your arms, and I have no idea why you can move the way you do. And then he just starts crying. There's a the, the film we're going to show on Wednesday that We were trying to get a statistic for survival rates or something and um we couldn't find anything and we called the power company and they got their engineers on it and they called us back a little while later and said look we've had people survive arc flashes where it like arcs to a transformer and someone's standing here and it blows you off but as far as conducting through the body like we can't find anything we can't find anything. What we can tell you if you want something is is the the voltage and the amperage he received at a minimum is like hooking him up to six electric chairs and turning them all on. So we don't have an explanation. My real first memory was I woke up and I just saw blurry images. I had tubes coming out of me everywhere. And, and I, I saw these people in the room. And then there was just one person who was kind of escorting people out and I, he was in a white coat, so I figured things weren't that good. And, uh, and he said, Matt, we're not supposed to do this like this, but I'm going to shoot you straight. He said, you've got fourth and fifth of your burns all over your upper body. We're doing surgeries every day. We're taking out dead muscle and trying to find more. and trying to. He said, but at some point in the next few hours or a few, few days at the most, you're going to move towards what's called septic. And at that point, you're going to have 4 to 5 hours to live. And I don't know if you have a living will or funeral plans or anything you have to share with your loved ones, but you know, we're going to keep you comfortable until you pass. And um I remember sitting there and just thinking, "Hey, have you ever considered being a counselor? Cuz you've got really good people skills." <laughs> <laughs> but nothing prepares you for that moment. And at that moment, it was like this book is real, if this story that I believe to be true with all my heart is real, and I have four or five hours left or 40 or 50 years, I know the end of the story. And I'm not going to be somebody who you say, you didn't want to know Matt at the end. He wasn't himself. I'm going to pour into my loved ones and be me right to the end because this is just one part of the journey because he is good. He's always good. It's not if you save me. It's because you already have saved me. I'm going to show you a couple pictures from the hospital. Um, This is sort of when I first came in um, and was in the coma, and things were looking pretty bad. Um, This next one is kind of cool. This was about a month and a half in. Um, That's an artificial lab-made product called Integra. You can't put skin grafts on top of fourth or fifth degree burns. Um, You have to create a layer first. You you can't just lay them on top of bone and muscle. So that shiny stuff is um, that Integra product. And then that kind of Iron Man-looking thing in my chest, that's actually my sternum. We hadn't cut out that part of the bone yet, so it was still burnt. This last picture is probably one of my favorite. Um, you could see even through her mask, you could see Bobby's smile. She made a decision on the front end, and then she managed that decision. And she'd go in, and she'd hold my hand, and she would encourage me. And then she'd walk into the hallway and collapse and wonder if that was the last time she'd ever talk to me. Wonder if she was about to become a single mom as she started this journey. When she said, for better or for worse, this was way worse. But she made that decision, so it wasn't, what do I do? It was, how do I manage it? How did we just have a role reversal? I went from being the provider, the protector of my home to somebody who couldn't open a water bottle or use the restroom without help. Super humbling. Being a pro athlete to not able to do anything, just be a burden on your family and your friends. 26 times in the last six and a half years, she's held my hand while I went under anesthesia and had over 70 operations. She made that decision on the front end, and she chose to look, and she came back seeing. She could have gave up and walked around blind with mud on her eyes and said, now we're in a mess, and we're going to split up, and it's amazing. I've been to trauma events. I've been to burn conventions, and how many spouses walk into that room and say, this is too much, and they walk out. And at that point in our brokenness and in our struggle, we were in our pit. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and homeschool. And now she's working full-time, a remote job while she's driving me five days a week to physical therapy when I get out, while she's caring for a newborn, while she has a husband that needs three-hour dressing changes twice a day, that can't do anything, that's way more work than a baby. Complete role reversal. And at that time, the romance, the part of our marriage that makes us us, that was gone And she said she just thought that was like that. She was just that was her cross to bear, that our marriage would never be the same. And I can stand up here today and say it's better than it's ever been. That we understand each other on levels that we never could because we went there together and we we didn't let it split us and we chose to look and we came back seeing. We saw the work that he would do. Probably the question I get asked. More than any. And it's funny because it's not even a realistic question, but people say, Matt, if you could go back, would you change it? And that's a hard question. That's a really difficult question to picture. You know, if I could have a young uh, conversation with a younger Matt, and in just a couple words, don't get in that bucket. I could take away all the pain and all the surgeries and all the suffering and all the brokenness. That's a really hard question to answer honestly, but the answer is no. If I could go back and talk to a younger me, I'd say, Matt, remember when we were little? Remember when we were little and we were scared of the dark? We'd sit in bed at night and we'd, we'd think we heard a noise in our room and I'd jump up and I'd flip the light on and I'd see the truth is there was no monsters, that I was okay i turn the light off, and I'd get back in bed. And pretty quickly, as I sat in the darkness, I forgot the truth I learned in the light. I'd say, Matt, you're going to go through some darkness in the next few years, some big things. Don't forget the truth you learned in the light, that you're loved, you're valued, you're bought at a price, that God has plans for you. And in this life or the next, he brings full restoration to all things, That's the God we serve. Look for that light, and come back seeing. I don't know how many of you guys have kids. Um, If you don't, I highly recommend it. Get married first. Do things God's way. (laughs) But um, have you ever seen what happens when a binky falls out of a a binky or pacifier falls out of a baby's mouth? I mean, it's like it's life life changing stuff. It's amazing. We're sitting there, Justice is uh, about four months old, and he's got his binky, he's chilling in the kitchen, God is good, mom and dad are good, life is good, I got my lifeline, everything's awesome, and then it happens, falls out of his mouth, and if he could talk, he would be saying things like, mom, dad, why'd you bring me in this world, God, why would you do this, it's so unfair, my lifeline's gone, why do I exist, like, and... His world collapses. And we, as parents, look down and we're like, little, bro, dude, take it down like 10,000 notches. You're, you're fu- dude, it's not gone forever. It's clipped to your shirt. It's right here. <laughs> and then we get a little bit older. And maybe we're teenagers. Our heart gets broken the first time. We move to a new town. We, our friend says something and behind our back and hurts us. And once again our world collapses. And nobody understands. Nobody gets it. Nobody's going through what I'm going through. So unfair. And it's a little longer than the binky fix, but a few weeks go by, maybe even a couple months, and we realize, all right, maybe I was a little dramatic. Maybe my 13-year-old girlfriend or boyfriend wasn't the one. (laughs) Maybe God has something else. But then we grow up, and we forget we're like that. And we're burnt. We're put in a wheelchair. We lose a loved one. We struggle with anxiety or depression. And our world just collapses. And I picture God just bending down and just saying, little dude, like you are on the verge of eternity. Like we've overcome the binky. We've overcome to the the grave. It's clipped to your shirt. You're right there. What is 50 or 60 years in a burnt, broken body compared to eternity in a perfect one? That's the God we serve. A God who doesn't want to see us broken by our challenges. That in our struggle, we ask him, Lord, please, if you would just come in and do something. And he says, I already have. I've already done it. In the middle, I didn't wait till the end. I did it. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you will have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Not you might, or you could, or you probably will. You will. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And if he's in us and we're in him, then through him we've overcome the world. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, no matter what we're facing. And we can face large amounts of pain, but we don't have to suffer. Now, there's not a lot of things I hate, but one of the things I do hate is that we always use those words so in interchangeably, and we say, "Oh, they're experiencing this, they're going through pain and suffering." We don't distinguish the difference. Pain is the thing that happens in our life to us, and when suffering is when those things break us. And we can go through large amounts of pain, but we can choose joy. We can choose peace, we can choose contentment, and we choose it by choosing him to sometimes say, I don't know the end of this particular struggle, but I know you're working. And even if I don't understand it, I know the end of the story. Are we choosing? Are we seeking? Are we coming back seeing? Are we at a place where we say, God, if you never do another thing for me, I owe you the rest of my life. You know, we have processes in our head. If you're familiar, everyone uses computers. And if you, you know, if you use Apple, their processing system is Mac or iOS. If you use PC, you have Windows. But our brains use narrative. And our processing system is stories that we tell ourselves. That's why I'm so passionate about stories, because we all have a story. I have mine, you have yours. And, and they root together, they bring us together, our journeys. But what narrative do we tell ourselves? If somebody calls you right now and says, hey, I got in a wreck, you tell yourself 10 stories in a matter of a few seconds. Do they need a tow? Are they okay? Are they, you know, is it drivable? Are they hurt? You know, we start going down these different pathways and narratives. What stories are we telling ourselves? How are we looking? What foundation have we built into our processors to choose joy, to choose to see Or are we choosing to find pain and choosing to find the struggle and choosing to find what's not good? And I I want to be super clear here because I don't want to mix up that emotions are bad because what I don't want is for us to go out there and face our struggle and smile and be like, it's great. No, it's not great. Don't say it's great when it's not great. It's not good. There's things that are not good. And, And the world shows the hero in the movie is that marine that's everything's falling apart around him and he's just kind of stone-faced and removed and super strong and we created that because it's easy you never see a marriage counselor being like yeah this this couple i don't know you know the problem is the husband He just communicates his feelings too much and he talks a lot and he's just really open and <laughs> no it's easy to close up it's easy to shut the world out and be like i'm fine push people away build walls that's easy but look at Jesus, the guy, he's, he's the guy who came and he laid it all on the line, left it all in the field, and he came in one of the most powerful spots in all of Scripture. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. The creator of the universe wept. Vulnerability, pain, emotions are real. They're part of our life. They're okay. Courage is not numbing it or ignoring the pain It's understanding it's there, but trusting the truth and staying the course. When Lazarus died, Jesus didn't start to question God and question what he could do, and could I really save these people, and could I raise him, and could I have done any? No, he knew the plan. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew he was going to save the world. But in that moment, he was able to recognize his friends, the people he loved, weeping, Lord, if only you'd been here, you could have done something. And they just, they've just they gone through so much, and the weight of that moment and the, the pain that they are experiencing together, he was able to be present and weep and recognize emotions are okay. Guys, if you're like that, go watch The Notebook. Go have yourself a good cry. You need it. <laughs> How do we go through these things and stay the course? Make the decisions on the front end that when I face these pains, I face these tribulations, I face the prognosis from the doctor or, or my accident or my loss, that it doesn't change my belief. It might change the things I do today. It might make me need to step away for a while and, and, and lean into that and come to terms with some stuff in my life and be real. But it doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change where I'm going and what he's doing. And when we get to that point, Kingdom living starts now. It's not one day. It's God in the middle that we can have joy in the midst of sufferings. Not happiness. Happiness is temporary, but joy. Because we can look and see his goodness. Or we can walk around with mud on our eyes, blind and lost. Because there's an action step. That guy could have said, I don't know what's going on. That guy rubs some mud on my eyes, and I guess it doesn't matter. I'm blind anyways, and where's the bathroom? And No, but he went, and he followed what Jesus said, and he came back seeing, and so should we. Probably the biggest thing that Christians deal with, and non-Christians, I guess the biggest thing that the world views when they approach God is, is God just, and is God fair? That's you know, there's atheists that say they could never believe in a God that could create the world and then allow the pain and suffering that happens. There's people that get angry and leave the church because of it. Do we serve a fair God? And man, I've looked into this a lot. You know, I spent a lot of times on I spent a lot of time on this issue. And and I've come to the conclusion that God is just, but He's not fair. And like, Pastor Jesse, don't throw me off stage. Just give me a second. He's not. I don't believe God's fair. Fair is a cause and effect. If I picked up a bowling ball and I dropped it on my toe, would I say, Lord, why did you hurt my toe? Like, no, it'd be pretty understood that I'm the idiot that dropped a bowling ball on my toe, and that's why my toe hurts. It's fair that my toe hurts. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and who have sinned, all. If God was fair, we don't deserve to have this conversation. If he, if he was fair, he didn't have to come to the cross. That's why it's called grace, because it's not deserved. It's not entitled. It's not deserved. It's not expected. It was grace. But he chose to be unfair. And he didn't just do that. He didn't just go to the cross and say, okay, you've got one day. You've got deliverance from all this mess you're in. But he said, no, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and he's going to be with you, and you can communicate with me. And in the challenges, I know there's stuff and brokenness and sin in this world that, that you're going to experience stuff, but I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be walking with you every step of the way. Why is it that the best doctors said not, is there heart damage, but how bad is it? They were sure my kidneys were going to fail, sure my arms had to come off. Sure, the brain damage was severe. Sure, they were keeping me comfortable until I died. Why were the best doctors wrong again and again and again? Because we serve an unfair God that's crazy about you. And he gave us everything in his book to walk through this life and to get through the things that we deal with here, to turn our obstacles into opportunities, to take us from bitter to better and use our misery for his ministry. That's the God we serve who doesn't want to see you or I broken by our challenges. But he's already overcome them because of what he's done in the middle. The light shining in the darkness right in the middle. Giving us everything to come back seeing. I don't know what you brought into this room. I know that my scars are on my arms and chest for everybody to see, but some of the deepest things that you may be dealing with are unseen. But God sees him. And he's standing at the door knocking, saying, anyone who opens, I will come in and sit and eat and walk through this with them. He says, this is my covenant, take and drink. Which in that culture meant, will you marry me? Will you enter a lifelong relationship with me? That will never end. It will go through eternity. I don't know what you brought in today. But he's working. He's working in it. And are we seeing? And even if this is the thing that takes us down, that we know the end of the story because of what he did in the middle. He's ready to use your, jo- your journey, your story, to tell his story so we can come back seeing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your promises. I thank you that you promised to be, to be with us in the middle, to be with us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our pain. Lord, I know that you see everybody's life in here, that they've either been through something, they're going into something, or they're in it. Lord, and I know that you're working, and it's not always the way that we, we want but if we look, we will see that you are always good, and you are always faithful, and you are always just, and you are always merciful, and you are always loving. Lord, I thank you that your word says that they will know us by our love. I pray that we're, we're not going to do something one day, but what are we doing today? What are we doing in Truckee, California, when we leave this place? Lord, I ask that when we leave this place, we didn't hear a message from me. We heard a message from you and it's not something that just we leave it in this building but we go and we're in the world but not of the world that people in this town look and they say, you're different. That they see the joy and the contentment and the peace that only you can bring and they want what these people have till this, this church is exploding. We can't see people. Lord, start a revival in this town because the people in this building Come back seeing. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? We're going to close in a couple songs.